This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. Today we're going to travel to the other side of the world, to the Tibetan Plateau. That's in China. The reason for our trip is to catch up with conservation biologist Andrew Smith. Dr. Smith is a professor in the School of Life Sciences at Arizona State University and an expert on some furry animals called pikas. As you will learn in our show today, pikas are what biologists call a keystone species. We'll learn more about these animals and why they're called keystone species. But right now, let's journey to China and listen to what Dr. Smith has been doing at his research field site. It's now 7.30. I'm beginning another 15-minute session, again sitting in front of the territory of large orange, orange, and large blue blue. Everybody in the family could get after. There have been many frequent social interactions in the past. It is absolutely still. Those two piles were given respectively by large yellow red, large orange green, neither of which were animals at risk. At the beginning of the session, I just missed recording a long call by Silver Silver, after which it was approached by large orange red, and they had a vigorous fight. Now that you've had a small taste of what it's like to be in the field with Dr. Smith, Let's meet our guest scientist. Welcome, Professor Smith. Welcome. Let me begin with one question many of our visitors to the Ask a Biologist website ask. What is a conservation biologist, and what do they do? Conservation biologists are generally interested in the biological diversity of ecosystems and species and even the genetics within species of all the forms of life on Earth. Conservation biologists do many things. They're very interested in preserving all of the biodiversity on Earth, biodiversity being the short term for biological diversity. And they do it in many ways, by conducting field studies to determine how many animals are found in the world and where they're found. They also deal a lot with the impacts on these species, whether or not the populations are declining, and what we can do to save these populations. So ultimately, conservation biologists work at many different levels, from being scientists, gathering data, working in the field, and also working very much more in today's world in the socio-biological, political, and economic world, because economics and how people think and work is really impinges on why things are endangered and what we can do to keep them from being endangered and to bring some species back that may be rare in the world today. So when you talk about biodiversity, we're actually talking about keeping the breadth, the many types of animals. Oh. That's correct. Right. And the issue about money is really important because, for example, the rainforest, the deforestation down there has caused a huge impact on biodiversity down there, but it was mainly a money issue at the time. That's right. But we use money in many different ways. Money can actually be one of the things that leads to the decline of species on Earth, but finding that certain species on Earth are in indeed valuable might even be responsible for saving these species and making people realize how connected we are to the real world. Right, and in particular, uh, medicines have come from plants. And Ma maybe as many as 50% of all the medicines that you would find in your local drugstore at one time or another were part of 
cultural tradition in local, among local peoples and have now found their way into our stores, but really were part of the natural world and used by Navy peoples when they didn't even realize um, what it was that they were doing. One of the points to make here is that we want to be careful that we don't lose something that we're going to need later. That's correct. Another thing that's interesting, even though you are a professor at Arizona State University, your research takes you to literally the other side of the world. What first got you interested in pikas and later your studies in China? Well, I work on these small animals called pikas, which are mammals. They're actually related to rabbits. They're shaped like an egg, about six inches long, with little round ears and a cute little nose and and no visible tail. They sort of hunch up. um, And there are actually two kinds of pikas in the world, pikas that live in rocks and pikas that live in meadows and that make burrows. I became familiar early on when I was a boy with the pikas that live in rocks because both of the kinds of pikas that live in North America are rock-dwelling pikas. And I grew up hiking in the Sierra Nevada mountains of California. When I was in ninth grade, I was going on three-week backpack trips with just a friend of mine. And hearing the pikas, because they're very vocal, calling from the rocks, got me interested in this animal. Then I ultimately went to university and began to read about these animals, and it was always, but nothing much is known about the pika. Well, this certainly piqued my interest. I went to graduate school, decided that I would work on pikas, and for two things. One, it was very interesting to sort of explore the unknown. And here, many, many, many years later, I'm still working on pikas because the questions that keep coming up scientifically are still interesting to me. But at that time, I got to study the animals that I thought were very interesting and do serious trout fishing in high-altitude Sierra lakes when I wasn't gathering my data. But I worked on these rock-dwelling pikas in North America and then uh, completed those studies and did more studies when I, be- when I came to Arizona State University. Then I began going to the library and reading that there were other pikas, and they lived in China and throughout Asia. Where there were many species there, and lots of the species that lived in Asia didn't live in the rocks like I was familiar with, but lived in these open, flat meadows. And yet these animals were six inches long, shaped like an egg, <laughs> no tail and little round ears, just like my pikas in North America. So from a scientific point of view, what drew me to China was to compare how an animal that looked exactly the same as the pikas I was so familiar with from my work here, how different they would be in their ecology and their behavior by living in a completely different kind of habitat. So that was the initial draw that took me to to China. That's what got you to China. How often do you travel to China to do your research? Well, I've been to China about 20 times. Most of those trips were to conduct research on my pikas. Also, as a conservation biologist and because of my familiarity with the ecosystems of Asia, many of the trips have actually been to advise the government of China dealing with biological diversity. And I actually couple many of my policy trips to China to talk to the government there with additional trips to go up to my my favorite part of the world, up on the Tibetan Plateau, to study my animals. So I've been there about 20 times. Hmm. Now, 20 times, it's how many years worth of research now? Well, I began work in 1984 going there. Okay. Um, I have a family, so there have been a few years I haven't gone, but I try to make it almost every year. Okay, we've done over 20 years. What has your research with pikas revealed? And to make it simple, what is the story that's showing up? Oh, 
Well, actually, the, the pikas in China turned out to be just completely fascinating. First of all, they hadn't read any of the scientific papers published in America because they did everything wrong, <laughs> which, of course, really makes things interesting for a scientist. They were very, very social. Normally, rabbit-like animals are not too social, but these pikas were grooming each other much like they were monkeys. They were sitting in contact. They had these six different vocalizations, some of which you heard earlier, which make them communicate with each other. They live in family systems. They have really, really high reproductive rates. Living. Normally, the rock-dwelling pikas have two babies per year. But these meadow-dwelling pikas may have 20 babies per year within a family. And they all stay together, and um, they groom each other. So it's became, become increasingly fascinating from the point of view of understanding their behavior, what was going on, and to compare them then to these almost the asocial or relatively unsocial pikas that live in rocks, such as the pikas that we have in our mountains of western North America. But then, and part of the story that we'll talk about today, became apparent how important this species was on the, on the ecosystem, that they were, in fact, a, a keystone species. Very good. Well, let's take a moment now, and let's return to your field site on the Tibetan Plateau and listen to some of the sounds the pikas make. When I heard all the different sounds the pika make, I was surprised, honestly. Uh, is this common for animals of this type, and how many sounds do they make? Well, rabbits are noticeably unvocal. Hares, the big jackrabbits that we have in, in the United States, they don't make any sounds unless maybe they're being eaten by a, a weasel at the time, and in which they screech their heads off. The small cottontail rabbits make almost no sounds. And in fact, it's very rare among the, the 91 species of animals in the, in the rabbit family to make any calls at all. But 30 of those species of rabbits, of rabbit-like animals, are pikas, and they're noticeably vocal. Most of the pikas that live in rocks only make two calls. One of the calls is a song given by males during the mating season that goes, eh, 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 something like that, and lasts for about 20 or 30 seconds. And the other is a, a short call to say, this is my territory, or when they repeat it, that a predator is coming. The, the multitude of calls that I witnessed when I first got to the Tibetan Plateau was amazing because there were like six different calls, and they were very, very different. There were whines and trills and long calls given by the males, the same mating function as in the rock-dwelling pikas. There were alarm calls, but they were very different. They were this faint call that you could almost not hear, just enough to warn the immediate family members that a predator might be approaching. Um, the most interesting calls of them all are these whines and the trills that the pikas make, because normally these are made by, by juvenile animals, by, by animals that have just um, been weaned from their mother, have just appeared on the surface of the, of, the, of the meadow for the very first time. And first there's one litter, and then three weeks later another litter of babies comes up, and then a, a three weeks later another litter of babies come up, and they don't disperse. They stay right on the family territory with the adults, the male and female, their mother and father. Well, these youngsters come up and give these calls, and when they give one of these whines or trills, all the other older brothers and sisters, that, called siblings, come running over and they mob each other, groom each other, and then they start these little 
train-like things where one animal will walk across the meadow and everybody else will follow him. Sometimes they're all following the father, which are real dads. And uh, normally males are not too paternal and, and don't do very much with their children in most mammal families. But in, in pikas, they're very, very social. And so the, the father is brought to the attention of the new juvenile when they give these calls. And so they're actively communicating with, with one another in a very dynamic way. I listened to you out on the uh, Tibetan plateau, and you're whispering, uh, obviously not to disturb the pikas. Are you using special equipment, and how close do you have to be, or how far away do you have to be, I should say, so you don't disturb them but can still get their recordings? Actually, the pikas are, are really interesting. In and You can just sit on the meadow and be still, and they'll run all around the meadow, including sometimes over your pant leg. But when I'm recording, you do try to be still as, and quiet as possible so that you get as much natural behavior from the animals because you want to witness them in, the, in their world, not in yours. I use very special equipment, a big one meter long or one yard long Sennheiser directional microphone so that I can point it right at the animal and really pick up that call specifically. Now, and, and normally we have to use things to muffle the wind, which is always blowing up in the plateau and makes things very, very difficult. And sometimes in my recordings, you can still, you can still hear the wind whistling by. Or sometimes you can use a parabolic directional piece of plastic behind a microphone to sort of, again, focus on a particular animal. Because remember, this is just a big open meadow. We're generally sitting between 11 and 14,000 feet in elevation on the meadow. The wind's blowing and, and, and the world goes on sort of just endless in all directions at this very high plateau. And so you have to use special equipment to make sure that you pick up just the call that you want. Right. Now, when you talk about parabolic, it's, it's basically a, a giant kind of a dish type of shape you can imagine. That I often ask our guest scientists if they remember the spark that got them interested in biology. Do you remember when and what the spark was for you? I've always loved the natural world. I think I was one year old when my parents first took me camping up in the Sierra Nevada of California. We went back for our family vacation every single year. A highlight of my annual cycle was getting up to the mountains, being out of doors, camping, learning all the birds and the mammals and things such as that. Certainly played out when I ultimately became older and more independent when I could go backpacking through the Sierra Nevada. I just loved the outside natural world. So that when I went to, to university, it was pretty clear that I was going to engage in a field of study that would, that would bring me close to my roots and what I was really interested in. I mentioned we'd talk a bit more about keystone species, but I thought before you talk about the pikas and their role as a keystone species, it might help to know what a keystone is and where the word came from. For that, we need to travel back in time, thousands of years, to the Roman civilization, where architects first began using a keystone. Now, the keystone is also called a capstone, so those two words could be used interchangeably. And they used a keystone when they were building their arches, uh, this was the centermost top stone that was put in the arch. And what it did is it distributed the weight of the arch all the way down through the columns or the walls so it would stay up. The interesting thing about a keystone is it literally was the keystone. If you pull it out, the arch would completely fall. Now that we know what a keystone is, the question for you, Dr. Smith, is how does a pica fit this term as far as a keystone species and what is a keystone species? Okay, the best definition of a keystone species is a species that if it was lost from an ecosystem, 
there would be a cascade or a reduced biodiversity. Other species would go extinct. Other species that relied on the keystone species would be lost from the ecosystem as well. So to lose a keystone species, much like losing the rock that um, Dr. Biology was telling you about, the arch falls down. Well, in an ecosystem, the ecosystem in part collapses because other species depend upon the, the keystone species. So this term has been picked up, keystone, by conservation biologists because some species really are extremely vital in ecosystems. Up in the high, you know, 14,000-foot meadows of the Tibetan Plateau where I work, there aren't that many species because it's so high and the, and the environment is so harsh. But the species I work on, this Plateau pica, lives at very high densities, sometimes up to 300 animals per hectare. And what's a hectare? A hectare is the length of a football field and make it square is approximately what a, what a hectare would, would be. And um, we, you can fit 300 pikas on that. And so they're very much an important part because they're numerically quite dominant in the ecosystem. In this regard, they're very similar to prairie dogs in North America. And in fact, the plateau pika is really the, occupies the same kind of environment and, and, and is a keystone species much in the same way that the prairie dog is in, in North America. But the pika in North America, when we've People have actually poisoned prairie dogs, considering them to be a pest. There are sometimes other species that sort of can fill in. But up on the Tibetan Plateau, there really aren't any other species that fill in. The Chinese government considers the pikas a pest and poisons them over huge areas. And when they disappear, almost everything else in the environment disappears as well. First of all, I'll tell you the reason why people consider prairie dogs and pikas a pest is because they think that they eat the grass that would otherwise be eaten by livestock. That would be cattle in North America and on, up on the mm -hmm. Tibetan Plateau. It would be yaks and sheep, which are basically grazing animals that the, the local Tibetan pastoralists um, herd up in that particular area. And they think that poisoning the pikas basically will increase the productivity of the, of the grass so that, base, so that they can have higher densities, higher stocking densities, more yak and more sheep. They also think that the pikas, and even in North America, the prairie dogs, degrade the ecosystem because they make these burrows and they seem to be very destructive. But I take a very different point of view by calling the plateau pika a keystone species because up in this area at 14,000 feet, there are no trees. So all the birds that evolved up in the Tibetan Plateau didn't evolve to nest in trees because there weren't any. What was there to protect them? Pika burrows, the burrows that go down into the deep alpine ah. sod soil so that the pikas make the burrows in which the um, several different species of snow finch, which is found only in the Tibetan Plateau, a really interesting bird related to our jays that we have in North America that hops along on two feet is called Hume's ground jay, nests only in pika burrows. The only native lizard on the Tibetan Plateau only nests in pika burrows. When you poison the pikas and the burrows collapse, there are no holes, and these birds disappear and are gone. So there's one aspect of the pika being a keystone because the native species birds and lizards that depend upon them to dig their holes, their burrows, are gone. Second, the pikas are the food resource for almost every bird and mammal that eats meat. Right. We call them raptors if they're birds. Um, these are your hawks and your eagles. And birds your of prey, right. Birds of prey. There, um, there are little owls that are out there and saker falcons. If you drive across the plateau in areas that have been poisoned, there are none of these birds, none.
Um, you get to an area that hasn't been poisoned yet, and they're in incredible densities. You can tell by looking at the sky whether an area has been poisoned or not. But the mammals, too, from smaller mammals like weasels to sm slightly smaller weasel-like animals that are called steppe polecats to a really shaggy cat-like animal called palaces cat, which is an endangered species, all the way up to wolves, foxes, and even big brown bears. Big brown bears are the same species as our grizzly bear. A famous Russian explorer named Przewalski, over a hundred years ago, was doing work on the Tibetan plateau and shot a big brown bear and opened its stomach to see what it was eating, and it had 53 pikas inside. Oh. And so um, these big bears, that's what they eat. And it's true today in the areas where there are still pikas in some of the remote areas where the where the bears have not been shot out, they still are there eating the pikas. So if you poison the pikas, all the carnivores, birds and mammals, disappear. It, it literally, it, it just like the arch, it collapses. It the, collapses. The system, all, the, all of it collapses. But what's interesting is there's even more than that. The, the kinds of plants that make up the alpine meadow are really thick. Actually, to try to dig in them is almost impossible because the the mat of roots is so thick. But the pikas, by burrowing through this and nibbling mm. through the, the roots as they make their burrows, bring soil up to the surface and recycle nutrients, uh, nitrogen, phosphorus, other kinds of nutrients. So they actually act like fertilizer for the, for the gardens on, on the surface. And so they actually the meadows, we believe, are richer in areas where there are pikas because of nutrient recycling. The very reason that they kill the pikas, Back which, to the grass. which is to make, because they think they hurt the grass, are probably making the, the, the grass better. And their disturbance that they make with their burrows actually means that different kinds of wildflowers grow so that if you actually look at areas where there are pikas and where pikas have been poisoned, there are many more species of plants, many more wildflowers and things such as that in areas where there are pikas. They increase the diversity not just of carnivores. They increase the diversity of different kinds of plant species, and they even may be responsible for the overall health of the meadow. And yet these animals are being poisoned um, by governmental decree in very much the same way that we that we poison prairie dogs in in North America, and um, it's very short-sighted. And it's one of the things that conservation biologists try to do is that we do the science to basically determine these relationships. But then, it really goes into the hands of politicians and policymakers to to affect the kinds of change that we really need to stop poisoning campaigns such as this, so that we can basically enhance biodiversity and bring these ecosystems back to their full health. Are there other animals and plants that are considered keystone species? Just a few. Um, I've talked about a couple. I've talked about the prairie dog. There are other ways in which keystone species might de be defined, such as um, a tiger. You can consider some of the top carnivores keystone species because if they're lost, the ecosystem below them collapses because maybe the the animals that they prey on become too abundant, and then they overeat their vegetation, and then they starve to death, and ecosystems can sort of go out of whack. The wolves, actually, isn't that also the wolves and some of the, uh, is it Yellowstone? Isn't that a big debate on that also? Very much so. Now okay. that wolves have been reintroduced to Yellowstone, where they right. were probably very important, the coyote populations are half the size that they were before. Right. And the coyotes, basically, because they ate other things, some of the smaller animals that the coyotes ate basically are coming back. And as a result of, of these animals coming back, 
some of the aspen groves are healthier. Everything is related to everything else. It's one of the one of the key things you learn as a as an ecologist. And so when you sort of play with Mother Nature and remove species, you often get these sort of domino effects. Right. Um, and that's really the keystone species concept. It gets into this issue of the food web, which a lot of people learn about while they're in school. It all pulls together that, you know, it is not as simple. It's not a direct line. There's a lot of entwined uh, relationships that become very critical. In your travels and your passion for these keystone species, uh, you've come in contact with some pretty influential people. Uh, I believe you've met Queen Noor. That's correct. And other people that have common interest in wildlife and something called the Red List. Right. Can you tell us about the Red List? We must have a a, a currency, a way of talking that is equal among all conservation biologists so that we know how to prioritize what it is that we want to save. So one of the ways to do that is to, is for endangered species is to have a, a clear mechanism for telling us whether a species from the data that we have available, whether a species is critically endangered, in other words, very, very rare, endangered, or maybe threatened with extinction. Uh, those are the three critical threatened categories that are found in the and what's the IUCN or World Conservation Union red list, and in theory, anyone every, anyone in the world given the same data on a particular species would come up with the same red list classification for any given species, so that we have a common currency for talking and and we we take the red list extremely seriously. We're continually get, trying to gather improved data on every species so that we can understand what its red list status is. For example, right now, all the mammals in the world have been th have been assessed using the criteria for the red list, and 24 percent of all the species of mammals in the world are threatened with extinction. One quarter. One quarter. For birds, it's about it's about 12 percent. For reptiles and in Actually, for amphibians, which have been completely assessed, it, the percentage is much higher, maybe as high as 50%. We can also, now that we're sort of assessing these things over time, can begin to understand how the red list categories will change over time for, say, all mammals or for all birds so that we can begin to look at temp assessments um, to understand how with the burgeoning human population, but also with our increased attention that we're giving to these species, what's happening, whether we're actually making a difference and, and how we can basically save these species and preserve the biodiversity on Earth. So did you go through school always thinking you were going to be a conservation biologist? Well, actually, I think most of us go through school not thinking at all, but you're, <laughs> you're, developing, you're developing sort of the, your own personality, even mm -hmm. if you don't know that you are at that at that particular point in time until finally, I, I think it was uh, around my junior or senior year when I was an undergraduate university mm. student that it became really clear that, that at that time, because I'm an old guy, um, people didn't think about their professions very much in advance. And so this is probably much later than a lot of this people listening to this broadcast are going to be thinking about their careers. But anyway, I was, it was maybe my junior, between my junior and senior year at university, I realized that um, being able to do research and do field work and, and to follow my passions was really fantastic. And, that, and have, being a professor is, I think, the best job in the world because you get to do so many different kinds of things from teaching to research to, to writing and things. So it's, um, and interacting with people and going neat places. Very much so. If you were not a biologist, what would you be? 
Oh, I, I actually toyed when, when I was an undergraduate student of maybe becoming, maybe sort of a biologist, but becoming a national park ranger or, na or naturalist. I, I always loved the naturalists in Yosemite National Park. Uh, there was a, a, an incredibly wonderful person named Carl Sharsmith that I think I first met around the campfire when I was one or two years old. And then when I was a graduate student, and he was very old and still driving the same car, which was a classic, um, from his home in San Jose up to Yosemite National Park. And uh, I, I found him with a bag of plants once to identify wildflowers for him for me from my study area where I was working on pikas and and he looked at the tallest mountain which was Mount, Mount Conness and it was glacier covered mountain and he said yes we've been here a long time Mount Conness and I <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and he identified every plant for me perfectly and um, just the fact that he was such a wonderful naturalist I thought that would have been a, a fabulous profession where I would have been able to sort of keep who I was as a person intact and, and done a lot of, had a lot of fun and done some good too. What advice would you have for a young scientist? Obviously just follow your heart. There are so many interesting and fabulous things to do in the world that just don't let anyone push you into anything that, that you don't want to do. You're going to, you'll excel at any career that you have that you're passionate about. And probably the reverse, unless you're really talented and end up in a job that you don't like at all, you might be able to pull that off for a little while, but you'll still never have a full conscience for yourself. Do what you like to do, whether if you love being in the lab and doing molecular biology or if you love fighting the elements and sitting out in 60, 100-mile-an-hour winds up in the Tibetan Plateau freezing to death and saying, hey, this is cool. It's not for everybody, but you should do what you like to do, and, and that's what I would suggest. I have just one more question. How's your Chinese coming? It's horrible. <laughs> I'm not a linguist, and uh, all the tones in China just leave me lost from ma, 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 and ma. If I got those four tones right, one's hemp, one's mother, one's a horse. So I'm always in danger of calling someone's mother either marijuana or a horse, and so I've, <laughs> I, 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 I can't go there. Um, some people have much better musical sense than do I, and, um, and Chinese is a lot easier to pick up. <laughs> well, Andrew Smith, thank you for visiting with us. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Ask a Biologist, and my guest has been Professor Andrew Smith from the ASU School of Life Sciences. You can read more about Dr. Smith on the Ask a Biologist website. Just click on the Profiles link to see his and other biologists' profiles. The Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University. And even though our program is not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website. The address is askabiologist.asu.edu. Or you can just Google the words, Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.